Stefan Kinsella, it's a pleasure to welcome you uh, to the Laissez-Faire Club, uh, publisher of your book, Against Intellectual Property. You're the perfect guy to talk about the Samsung Apple suit. You've been reading uh, the news? I've been following it, but every couple of hours there's something new, so you may be ahead of me right now. Uh, the latest thing, thing I heard was Apple is cert, uh, going to file for an injunction, so they're going to try to clamp down and cement their victory. Now, I was looking at the data. It looked like Samsung uh, phones and not well non iPhones were uh, blasting ahead of the iPhone uh, in the industry in the industry in terms of consumer popularity, right? Yes, I, th I think that's uh, clearly a trend, and that's what Apple is concerned about. So instead of competing, you know, like an honest player and trying to improve their products, I mean, they're improving them to some degree, but instead of relying upon that. They're going to the government to try to get them to shut down their competition. It's very simple. Uh, <laughs> that is a simple way to put it, actually. I mean, you, that's the way tariffs work. That's the way taxes work. It's the way a lot yes. of labor legislation works. You impose high costs on your competitors, whatever. Yes. Yeah, Use but most government. people don't confuse that with the free market, which everyone today seems to. I mean, you had a post about the smoothies and McDonald's, like a, a spoof post, right? Like yeah. how Smoothie King is suing McDonald's for selling smoothies because, of course, you can only have one seller of smoothies, and then you say, well, that's a joke because it's not true. Um, there's nothing wrong with people competing on a similar type of product. Yeah, um, so what mixes up this case, I mean, it would be very obvious. Like when G when, when uh, uh, the large banks were bailed out, for example, after 2008, everybody understood it was just a pure transfer of wealth, like a racket, basically. Yes. Crony capitalism, as they call it. Yes. Um, but what complicates this is the confusion over whether patents are essentially legitimate or not. Well, the way most people seem to approach it is in their regular life, they're used to the idea of competition. In other words, you know, if one guy steals another guy's girlfriend, it's fair and square, and that's a fair thing to do. Or if you see a successful business and you set up a competing shop and you want to compete with them, uh, and improve the product, and you have, uh, you know, first there's McDonald's as a big chain, and then you have Wendy's and Burger King and Dairy Queen and Chick-fil-A and other other restaurants compete against each other, and they each improve, and if someone sees that the competitor has come up with some innovative improvement that pleases the customer, then they'll follow suit, and you have this ratcheting effect, right, where you have people chasing to the customer, trying to please the customer, and yet when it comes to these uh, patent disputes, everyone sort of just takes for granted the official wisdom that they're given in grade school and by the media that now there's something wrong with copying just because the word patent is used. So now the question becomes, well, did Samsung or did Samsung not copy from Apple? And did they copy too much? So the implicit presumption becomes, well, we all agree that it's wrong to copy from someone if you're copying too much. Whereas in their regular daily life, they don't believe that. So this whole idea of patents and copyrights distorts how you even think about the competitive process. Yeah, I was uh, realizing this morning when I woke up, I slept on a pillow that was very similar to the pillow I slept at in a hotel halfway across the country made by a different company. And same with the sheets and the bath towel and the soap and, you know, so on and so on. I mean, that could, and that's just in the first 10 minutes of your day, right? Hey, of course, that's right. And you put on clothes that are either cheap knockoffs or expensive designer things. Uh, from three feet away, they look exactly the same. If you held 
Josephay Bank up next to Burberry's, uh, two jackets to a jury, they'd say, well, clearly somebody stole from somebody here. Yes. And of course, this gets to this sort of propagandistic element to the way people sell these ideas. They use these loaded terms like stealing or piracy or ripping off. Um, so they'll say, well, well, Samsung uh, ripped off uh, Apple or they, they stole from Apple. Well, what they really mean is they copied. And uh, the, hip the hypocrisy is that Apple, of course, copied and learned from other people. I mean, none of these inventions or innovations come in a vacuum. They're, they build upon uh, the scientific and engineering and cultural background that we all inherit as part of being part of being part of society. So, and I mean, you know, there's these famous quotes circulating now that Steve Jobs said, you know, we're really good at stealing, which which he meant we're good at learning from others and copying and doing doing something better. He bragged about it. I mean, he thought that that was a cool thing to say. Of course, and when he becomes, he was an under, underdog then, but now he's on top, so he wants to clamp down on it. Yeah, and it's always the way these these IP complaints go. Uh, so let me ask you this: Who's more? If you're going to point to the bad guy, for, well, let's first establish this is catastrophic for the consumer, right? I think it's going to be uh, very bad. Um, if nothing else, there are literally hundreds of millions of dollars being spent on patent attorney's fees and litigation around the world uh, every year. That's got to come out of somewhere. So prices to the consumers will increase or they won't fall as much as they would have. Innovation will slow down. Um, so if Apple is able to enjoin, which is what they're trying to do, if they're able to get a court injunction against Samsung um, – saying that you just can't sell certain devices here. Now, the court injunction will only apply to certain enumerated devices, but it's going to have a chilling effect on Samsung for iterations of it, and they're going to have to come to Apple with their tail tucked between their legs and say, well, this is a little bit different. We don't want you to sue us next time, so could you give us a license? And Apple will say, well, 30 bucks a device, maybe so. So that will hamper their competition. Um, it will give Apple monopoly profits it will hurt the consumers by raising prices so yes it's going to be bad all around and it's going to have a chilly effect around the world too because um these large companies like apple samsung you know google um they have worldwide networks and worldwide markets so apple right now has lawsuits with samsung and with other smartphone makers uh, in four four countries at least there's a uh, australia north korea United Kingdom, the U.S., and the results are all a little bit different. So it generates legal uncertainty, but it and it also raises prices for consumers, but it does exert a chilling effect on any smaller player. Anyone who's smaller, who doesn't have like a huge 10,000 war chest of patents that they can use to fight back like Samsung has done and billions of dollars of revenues to hire the lawyers to do it, they are going to be dissuaded from even entering into this market. Which means they're not going to try to innovate. They just so this is a clear loss of innovation. Yeah. Um, because of these companies chilling competition through the use of state force. Yeah, and and there won't be new entries into the market either. I mean, this this is a really obvious point, but it actually I must admit that it never occurred to me until uh, Gary Shanche writes about it in his book, um, uh, Conscience of, a, of an Anarchist, but. He points out that the downside of a market for patents, I mean, you, you might think that like a neoclassical economic theorist or somebody like that would say, well, 
patents may not be the perfect solution, but at least there's a market that can be traded between companies. Right. But he makes the point that this is a kind of fake market, in a way, uh, that sets huge and artificial barriers to entry. Yes. You shouldn't have to go out and purchase your ideas. Yeah, I think that's completely true. It, it does. It clearly establishes barriers to entry, which is why, I mean, along with other government regulations, of course, um, some of the traditional regulations that libertarians and free market types would complain about, right, and maybe even say, isn't this horrible as a penalty on big business, for example, right, or, or capitalism, modern capitalism. Right. Um, a lot of those laws were favored by and actually helped and worked to the benefit of the larger sort of crony capitalists like the minimum wage or the union legislation or even tariffs in the FDA. Uh, you know, the big pharma companies can afford the FDA <clears throat> regulatory process. Smaller right. companies uh, cannot. I think I read fairly recently a story about how Walmart is in favor of increasing the minimum wage. Yeah. And, of course, the reason is Walmart pays more than the minimum wage, so they right. wouldn't be hurt by an increase in the minimum wage, but they're smaller more nimble, hungry competitors uh, yep. would be. So but this is just an example of state legislation that pretends to have one purpose that really sets up barriers to entry and causes oligopolies to form. Yeah, and it's easier to understand in the case of, uh, as you said, the, the FDA. Uh, I mean, those are huge regulatory barriers that clearly shouldn't exist and wouldn't exist in a market, but uh, the patent barrier is a little more difficult to understand just because of the fundamental intellectual confusion um, of whether or not it's okay to copy what other people do. Now, I've, I've written many times that there's a socialist <coughs> element to, to capitalism in yes. a good sense. Yes. You can, yes. you can take your private profits, but the price you pay for that is that necessarily if you're selling to consumers, you're giving away your ideas to potential comp competition. Yes. So, well, you know, I, I was reading something the other day by David Friedman, who's a very smart, radical, free market guy, but he has a more um, utilitarian approach to things. And he was trying to explain from his sort of wealth maximization point of view what's the purpose of property. And he recognizes something, but he also, I think, missteps. He says, there's two purposes of property. One is to help allocate scarce goods, things that can only be used by one person at a time. Right. But the other function of property is to give an incentive. So what he said was in the case of ideas and patterns of information, uh, recipes, you know, innovations, artistic works, that really this scarcity function doesn't make any sense, which is what our argument is. But he says, but we still need to have an incentive uh, for people to do it. Now, it's a little bit odd for an anarchist to talk about that we need to create an incentive, a social incentive yeah. to do things, because that necessarily leads to some kind of weird central planning. Yeah. <clears throat> so I think you have to realize that incentives just follow naturally commerce and human interaction. And competition. Yeah, you don't need to have a, a, a property right set up to provide an incentive. Um, and Hoppe gives sort of the fundamental foundational analysis of the origin and nature and function of property rights. And what he points out, he just says, imagine a world where everything is super abundant. 
So let's just imagine you and I are humans, and all we need is bananas. And there are bananas everywhere. You can just reach up and have a banana anytime you want. There are just billions and trillions of bananas, almost like the air we breathe now. In that case, not only would you not need property rights in bananas, it really wouldn't – no one would understand what you're talking about because uh, why would I want ownership of a banana if I can replace it on a whim? Right. And why would I care if someone took my banana from me if I can replace it on a whim? And why would someone bother to take it from me if they can have their own banana at any time? And you wouldn't need an incentive either because they're just there. So I think these things dovetail, and I think that without scarcity, without uh, a fundamental ability of people to fight over a necessary resource, that there's no sense to property rights. So that's why they arise, and they're important because we do live in a world where there are things that are scarce. But ideas and information is something that we all can benefit from. We can all use the same information at the same time. We can spread it. We can learn from each other. We can transmit it down through the generations and the ages to our children and our grandchildren and our descendants, and it will grow and grow and grow and become a greater body of knowledge, of recipes, of causal knowledge, of inspirational ideas that we can all draw from. There's, there's no need to artificially try to make it scarce. Now, what do you uh, make of the, um, uh, of, the, of the jury in this case? Now, uh, there were a lot of people pointing out the very obvious fact that the trial was taking place uh, 10 miles from Apple's headquarters, so you have a strong bias there uh, towards, I mean, in the, in the sense that the local team is biased in favor of the local football team. Uh, the local locals like their local football team. You know, well, so there's, there's probably something to that, and Samsung is Korean-based, of course, so they're an interloper. Yeah. Um, but I think the biggest problem is the law is not objective. And these poor guys were conscripted, basically, right? Drafted out right. of the citizen pool, right. and given a list of seven hundred uh, questions to answer, which are all based upon non-objective law. I mean, if you see some of these questions, you'll see how completely arbitrary and artificial patent law is. Um, the The problem is the the entire purpose of a jury, the entire reason we think juries make sense, is because of the origin of our system where you have a common law, decentralized court system, the fundamental goal of which is to do justice in a given case. You have two people that come together with a dispute, right. and the judge or the court, their job is to try to find the right answer. It's not always easy, and especially in criminal cases where if you, know, if you get the answer wrong, the guy's going to go to jail, then you want the jury there to invoke the common sense sense of justice of the community. And we all have, as normal citizens of the community, have experience understanding what people's motivations are, understanding what basic right and wrong is. Almost everyone believes you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't rape or rob or murder, etc. Um, so it makes sense to have a jury both evaluate what's being claimed of the, of the uh, malfeasor, the bad guy, and also act as a check on the state. But the fundamental point is the judge or the jury or both are being asked to do justice. And then they can refer to previous cases, which is called precedent. But in today's age, we have a statutory age or a legislative age where the vast majority of laws are not just the, the previous attempts of people, like the rules that developed when people were trying to find what the right result was. 
We just have artificial decrees issued by someone who is the government says is uh, uh, allowed to issue, say, what the law is, like a legislature or an edict or a decree by, you know, an emperor. And so the problem is the job of the judge and the job of the jurors is just to interpret words. It has nothing to do with whether or not justice is being done. Right. So they have this narrow focus on these hyper-technical legislated terms that have really nothing to do whatsoever with justice. And further, they're hyper-specialized. And these people don't understand what non-obviousness means or uh, you know, uh, novelty in a patent sense or utility or prior art. Uh, they hear all these crazy rules that have been crafted and developed by lawyers and bureaucrats um, and judges and courts over the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and they're helpless. I don't blame the jury at all. They, I think they were tired. They were worn out. They thought it was just a morass. And they just went with their gut, you know, instinct yeah. that it's yeah, you it's know, the the, the 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 Samsung devices look like the iPad and the iPhone. But they even, do. But, but even even given that, <clears throat> there's a there's a, a, a very obvious point here that Samsung would stand no chance in a market against iPhone if they did nothing but deliver a exact same thing. I mean, a competitor has to have some advantage to the overall product, whether it's price. Absolutely, and they did have an advantage. They had more openness. They had features that iPod and iOS has copied, like this, uh, you know, notifications, things like this. Um, so, of course, they have advantages. Um, they, have a, they have a different ecosystem. They have a different hardware, and different some people, speed, some different consumers, prices. Some consumers prefer, preferred it. For, of course. For, for some yeah. reason. I mean, more and more, more and more people are preferring um, Android, or they were until right. it was about to be joined by this court suit. Right. So, I mean, in a sense, Apple's real fundamental objection was not so much that it was a copy; it's that it was better. I mean, or to, from some consumers' point of view, that's what I actually, I actually agree with you. I think that is they don't want to admit that, right? I think they have sort of two ways of looking at it and justifying it in their board meetings. Number one is, look, we want to own this market, and they did own it at first because they were the, kind of the first, and they figured out a way to make it accessible to yeah. consumers. But that advantage won't last forever. Right. Um, but they want it to last forever. Right. But it's not and, supposed to. I mean, in a free market, it's not the, the first the advantage of the first mover is not supposed to be, you know, a, a, a sealed wrapped deal for all time and eternity. It can't work like that. And not only that, no, profit shouldn't last forever. You and I have talked about this before. Um, you know, we libertarians and pro capitalist types are used to being in favor of, of profit, and we are because it's a sign that you're doing something that. Um, is valuable to the consumer, but you know the idea is that profit is sort of an unnatural phenomenon. It's an aberration of the, you know, of the of the market's equilibrium yeah. tendencies. Right. And over time, uh, especially in an open society and an open market, people are aware of what's going on. Right? That you can't hide the fact that you're making a profit or that your product is profitable. The more profitable it becomes, the more popular it becomes. Yeah the more visible the fact will be to everyone else. Yeah. And that, that signal in the market lets people know, hey, this guy is doing something out of the ordinary that has caused a disruption, that is providing a lot of value to consumers, and you might be able to grab a slice of that pie too. So, of course, people or competitors are attracted, and that means the price goes down over time. Yeah. And then all the original players and the new players have to keep thinking of new ways 
to disrupt the market and new ways to innovate and improve and come up with better efficiency to satisfy the consumer. That's the way the market process does work and it's supposed to work, but it's being short-circuited by the patent uh, process. So we've got uh, two final questions that kept you longer than I promised it would. Um, the first one concerning the cost of this, we'll never really know them, will we? We won't, we won't know the innovations that didn't come about, the companies that didn't have a, a start in the market. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's Bastiat and uh, Hazlitt's idea of you know, the seen and the unseen. That's right. So it's, it's, it's pointless and fruitless for us to sit around and speculate about, about you know, the terrible cost of this. Because, I mean, uh, you know, the smartphone is the great innovation of this generation, right? I yes. think. Yes, and for it to just be cut down like this by 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 one you know would be monopolist with a with a government regulation is is infuriating and and cruel to to consumers and to the drive of history itself. To, well, to if if you look at the first iPhone, right, we, we think that was a revolutionary device, and it was. But compare it to the current devices, it really needed to keep improving, which yes. it has. Right, but if you just kind of say stop it in its tracks and say the current iPhone 4S or the iPad 3 is basically as far as we need to go, and we don't want any competition to force us to keep improving, it's crazy. Of course, they're going to keep getting better and better, but you need competition for that. Yep. And the second thing concerns uh, patent law itself. Do you see any way of discussing this issue uh, clearly uh, without? taking on these theoretical fundamentals should the state be involved in regulating it's, the distribution of ideas? I, I think you – well, you don't need to be an anarchist, okay, let's say, to be against intellectual property. As long as you believe in just free markets and property rights, you ought to sense that something is wrong with this whole idea. Uh, and if you understand that there's a connection between copyright and patent and you see the damage that's being done to, to personal liberties – and individual freedom and internet freedom in the name of copyright um, and even patent to some degree, that ought to give you some pause. Um, I think the problem is you have to get people to think in a principled way. Um, too many people have a, a utilitarian um, uh, point of view, right. and you can point out one example after another to them and of, of, of excesses or obviously unjust results of the current system. And they will tend to agree with you. Well, they'll say, well, I agree with you that that's a bad example. We need to fix that. And you can just list 100 things in a row, and they'll keep agreeing. And But then they'll just finally say, but we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Now, what's a little bit odd, I believe, is that you know, lawyers don't have the best press in the country, right, in the community. Lawyers are often ridiculed and maligned. Uh, they're conflated with senators and law lawmakers, and yet – the one class making out best with this whole racket are the patent lawyer class. Yeah, I mean, there are hundreds of millions of dollars just being thrown at these large and boutique uh, patent litigation firms around the country and around the world. Hundreds of millions every year. Uh, they're just getting rich off of it, whether they win or lose. I guarantee Samsung's patent attorneys are doing just fine right now, even though they lost. Um, and you would think that people that already have an innate sense that there's something wrong with the lawyer class can take so much wealth from these weird laws that they help craft in Congress. Um, you think that they would have a little bit of uh, reluctance to be so much in favor of these lawsuits. So I think you just have to keep giving them examples, explaining to them that competition is a good thing, and try to get people to think in a principled way 
um, about property. I also think if you explain the history of patent and copyright and you explain how these things arose in the 16, 15, 1700s as a pure control uh, attempt by the government to control thought and to protect industries from competition as like political favors, yeah. you can kind of open people's eyes to that this is just the modern – version of well, that. Well, I think software patents itself, software and hardware patents only came about in the, what, the late 1980s or something like that. I mean, they didn't even uh, exist before then. And there's plenty of sectors of society that are not controlled with this intellectual property, like all the goods I mentioned at the outset, you know, my pillow, the sheets, my jacket I'm wearing, uh, uh, the, the dinner I'm cooking tonight, thank God there's That's not... That's right, the food industry, uh, recipes, uh, perfume, uh, fashion, the fashion industry, fashion which is huge. Industry, the, the sports rules over sports, thank God, you know... Yeah, fo football plays, I mean, <laughs> bar bartender drinks, and by the, every year or six months you hear about another attempt by one of these little industries to yeah. try to get Congress to pass another intellectual property law to protect them, to protect yeah. football plays or bartender drinks or recipes or fashion designs. Well, that's another example of a rule that we sometimes hear, that the biggest enemy of capitalism are capitalists themselves. Yes, unfortunately, that is sometimes the case. Yeah. Thank you, Stefan, for being with us today. And Thank you, Jeff. Let me just add that uh, you can get your book with an introduction by me and a lot of new material from you uh, called Against Intellectual Property at the Laissez-Faire Club. I know you're a member, and I know you love it. I do love it. It's fantastic. Thank you so much, Stefan. Thanks.